friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Hello, Tomb Believers. It's a dark and stormy night here in the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Perfect weather for tales of vampires and fangs. And also for Coco. Wait a minute. Where did you get Coco? That bucket over there in the corner. The bucket? James, that's not Coco. How many times do I have to tell you, never trust Bucket Coco? But Bucket Coco is the best Coco. <sighs> this is why I drink hot tea. Earl Grey? Hot. Anyway, I'm James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And as we stated, we are focusing on Tales of Bloodsuckers this evening. With That's right. Vampire Tales, number one, from June 1973, and... Tomb of Dracula, number 11, from August 1973. Right, and so uh, Vampire Tales is yet another of the black and white horror mags, so we've got a few different stories to cover in that, Um, but then the Tomb of Dracula is just the standalone single story. Right. But that being said, why don't we go ahead and get into it? We'll be right back after a quick break with Vampire Tales, number 1. James, stop drinking the bucket cocoa. Michael Crawford returns to Broadway in Dance of the Vampires, a bitingly funny new musical from the composer of Bat Out of Hell. Ticketmaster for the one new musical that really bites. Dance of the Vampires. Thanks, old Zebra. And we're back with our first comic of the day, Vampire Tales number one, and we're starting with the story Morbius. Written by Steve Gerber, pencils and inks by Pablo Marcos, and the editor is Roy Thomas. It's late at night in Los Angeles. A young woman named Barbara Clark is on her way home. As she approaches her car, she is horrified to see Morbius, the living vampire, descend on her from above. He feeds quickly, and is immediately horrified at the murder he just committed. He reflects on his origins, and his unseen escape from the X-Men, and he reveals that he's come to LA searching for his beloved Martine, as well as help with his condition. He finds a box of donated clothing, and changes into something less conspicuous before setting out on the streets of L.A. He soon meets Carrie, a member of a cult called the Children of Satan, and she offers to take him to a mystic who might help Morbius find Martine. Morbius scoffs at such superstition, but he agrees to give it a try. They go to see Madame Lara, who conjures a vision of Martine already dead. Morbius lashes out, and from the crystal emerges the demon Nilrak, who is to kill. Morbius fights the demon, eventually tearing at its throat with his fangs. While the demon dies, it does not bleed, and so Morbius feeds on the fortune teller. He goes home with Carrie, but realizing he is a danger to her, he leaves after she falls asleep. As the sun rises, Morbius drifts to sleep in the cellar of a warehouse, fearing the time when he will need to feed again. So, with Werewolf by Night... We have another comic set in Los Angeles. Is there just something inherently terrifying about California to the Marvel writers? You mean other than the traffic? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm not gonna... I mean, literally the first two panels show smog and a traffic jam. Yes. So that was cliche even then. Um, But no, I, I think part of it... Part of it is probably this was when Stan was spending a lot more time on the West Coast, um, so that might have something to do with it. Um, but also, I think 
wanting an urban setting that was not New York. Hmm. There was already so much of the Marvel Universe located in New York that L.A. was a place that could be similarly hip. Yeah. But but was visually different and didn't have all of the baggage that New York of the Marvel Universe in the 1970s would have. And that kind of makes sense because if you had somebody like Morbius running around New York, you'd probably have a lot of the superheroes of the Marvel Universe trying to stomp him. As he already has. Yes. He had Spider-Man, the Human Torch, and the X-Men all trying to stop him in the brief time he was in New York. Right. And also, I think for for these horror, for these monster characters like Werewolf and Morbius, there's kind of a, a fun irony to play with of these creatures of the night living in a place that's known for being bright and sunny. I suppose so. Like, like this is about as far from the rainy, overcast streets of Victorian London as you can get. Yes. With, okay, that, that makes sense. Because, again, you do think of Los Angeles as being this warm, sunny place. Kind of glamorous, really, with Hollywood being there and the Sunset Strip. And even the nightlife is brightly lit. There's neon everywhere, there's clubs, there's uh, glitter, all of that stuff. True. True. They do reference the X-Men. Um, I think both you and I were kind of hoping that they would show how Morbius escaped from the X-Men. Yeah. But they didn't. Right. Like, he has not just escaped, but crossed the entire continent. Right. It... And we don't know how. And this was during that kind of that period where the X-Men weren't really a going concern. So I can understand why they wouldn't decide to show the X-Men. I mean, Beast was off being an Avenger. Right. Like, most of the X-Men were basically showing up in other people's books at this point. And I think, actually, weren't Angel and Iceman part of the champions at this point? They most certainly... So they moved to the West Coast, too. Ah. Um, I'm not sure if champions had started at this point, but they were definitely members of that team. Okay. That weird, weird, wonderful team. Which... No, the champions haven't started yet. Right, because that's a Ghost Rider thing. Yeah, we'd be talking about it if they had. Yeah. Uh, but this, because this is the time where the X-Men aren't really a going concern, it would be nice to talk about them, to see what's going on here. To at least get a panel or two of like flashing back to it. We certainly flash back to everything else that Morbius has ever done. True. And this is kind of the reason why we did get that miniseries, X-Men The Hidden Years. Because oh, to fill in those gaps. Right, we we do have kind of this huge missing period for X Men hitting years. Now it didn't last that long, and I'm wondering if it had, if we would have seen Morbius brought in, mm-hmm. or any of the stuff uh, brought in. But it does seem like there is still, even now, an interesting story to tell there. Yes, I, I will say, uh, j- just following that brief mention of uh, Xavier and his mutants. Um, the montage of flashback images is really well done. Yeah, um, where, where it, we get we get like a basically most of a page summarizing his origin, and then another page that sort of shows his fights with Spider-Man and Lizard. True, although I can't help but compare it to a Mike Plug montage, hmm. where I don't think it's it, as strong. It's, it's not as stylized as that. No. And since we're um, talking about artwork, uh, we ha- we do have, uh, like you said, uh, Pablo Marcos on artwork here. And his figures are amazing. Yeah. I feel like the backgrounds are kind of lacking, though. And I wonder how much of that is him because of the black and white, like not wanting to distract from the figures. Hmm. Like I could, I can envision a version of this that would be incredibly busy, and therefore hard to sort of follow. But you're right; the the backgrounds tend to be much more sketchy. Like you get sort of the outline of a wall with maybe a, a rough brick pattern, um, or you get like a few shadows suggesting something in the background. True. It's just that we have so many panels in this comic that have no backgrounds whatsoever just figures fighting oh yeah just plain white yeah yeah 
it's it's almost like a John Byrne comic from like the late eighties. Yeah, yeah. Shout out flight stuff. Hey, hey, how you doing, guys? <laughs> um, yeah, that that is a little bit of a disappointment because I was I was really impressed, especially with the faces. Um, like Morbius's face in most panels is just fantastic. Yes. Especially that close up in the middle of the flashback. Yes. Um, and, and but. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It, 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 you contrast that with panels where actual story is happening, and they're very sparse. Yeah. Oh, so one other thing. I have a I have a theory about something in this story, and I'm going to run it by you, okay? Okay. So the demon that, for some reason, gets summoned at the end of the story is Nilrak. Okay. Nilrak seems like just a random demon name except it is carlin backwards and i'm pretty sure this would have been roughly around the time that mike carlin might have joined marvel what did he do with marvel he started in their magazine division working on crazy okay and then eventually ended up doing some stuff with grunwald so again, I can't prove that. I've not found anything anywhere that actually confirms that. But it just—I just have to wonder if they were just playing around with names of people who were in the office at the time, trying to find something that looked like a good demon name. True. I don't think it's so much a slight as a he he he. I put you in here as a demon. Oh yeah, no, it's a total like just in joke thing, which again would make sense when you think about the fact that Mike Carlin was one of the people involved eventually with Assistant Editor's Month. <laughs> uh, he did the Aunt May and Franklin Richards versus Galactus story. Okay. So, so oh, again, God. The, that, sense the of, golden... that sense of humor, I think, uh, fits. Is that the Golden Granny thing? Golden Oldie? Oh my God, the Golden Oldie. <laughs> what if Aunt May had been a Herald of Galactus? Um, I don't know if that's the one. Uh, but it's definitely in that uh, that that mode, I suppose. Um, yes, actually, it is. That is the golden oldie issue. Okay. So, speaking of demons, um, the the children of Satan, is it just me, or do they have the red cross symbol on their cheeks? It does sort of look like that. I, I feel like this is an instance where we are not being well served by the black and white magazine format. But like, immediately my brain fills that in as a red cross in a red circle. I'm like, ah, they're, 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 they're nurses? Huh. <laughs> I feel like, you know, maybe if it was done now with, you know, totally outside any consideration of comics codes or parents groups or whatever, like, um, it would probably be like an inverted cross, like looking more like a Christian cross instead of a generic cross. Yes. Or like a pentagram of some sort. Right. Um, although speaking of, uh, the, the children of Satan, Carrie is weirdly nonchalant about having joined a cult. Yes. And is very upfront about calling them a cult, which cult members usually don't do. No. No. They're like, "Oh, the family." Or, you know, you got to you got to meet these these far out people I'm hanging out with these days. It's all about the community, the collective. There you go. <laughs> there we go. But yeah, no. It it's just the way she is written is just really weird. Yep, I'm in a cult. <laughs> also, the cult apparently has a thing against um, clothing covering your midriff. I mean, I that's fair. I, I could see that. I mean, it, it is the 70s. You gotta understand, man. The belly button is the window to the soul. 
If you cover your belly button, you cover your soul. Have you heard about your third eye? Well, the belly button is like your fourth eye. If you, like, cover it, you're, like, blinding yourself to reality. (laughs) I could totally start a cult. Uh, Please don't. Um, So, yeah, the... I don't know. Join me! (laughs) I, I don't know if we'll see more of her. The way the issue, the way the story ended, I'm thinking probably not. But her her very existence and characterization just raises a lot of questions about the Marvel Universe version of L.A. Well, part of this, I think, is a bit of helter-skelter hangover. Sure, sure. I mean, you're definitely getting some The Family vibes from this. And you have to remember, the Charlie Manson... Uh, murders and trial were only like, what, two or three years ago at this point? Probably. That sounds about right. So they were still very heavy in the public consciousness. Sure. And very much coloring the perception of California and L.A. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. I, I get the, the why, okay, we're in L.A. with supernatural murderous type stuff. There should be like, at least one cult member running around. I just, it's weird in that both how upfront she is about it and how weirdly positive she is as a character. Yes. Like, she's she's the nicest person Morbius meets the whole time he's in L.A. Yes. Which, which I just want, well, this is a Gerber story. This could just be Gerber's weird sense of humor. That the yes. nicest per- The nicest person you meet in L.A. is a member of a cult. Yeah. And even when she discovers Morbius as a vampire, she's pretty chill about it. Yeah, well, I mean, she already was into, like, Satanism and uh, people who can see into the future and all that stuff. So I guess this isn't that much off the mark. It's mad, frightening, and fascinating. (laughs) And then she takes a nap in her living room with with a vampire beside her. Yep, yep. Not something I'd feel comfortable doing. I, I, I would not think so. Um, and, and, and then Morbius just goes off by himself and is sad and lonely, which I feel like is going to be a recurring theme with Morbius, is that at the end he goes off by himself sad and lonely? Yes. Like, I mean, straight up, uh, uh, 1970s David Banner, Lonely Man, piano theme playing in the background. Do, 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 uh. So this comic has a fairly high body count. It does. Like, just random pedestrians. Because, like, we get the woman in the beginning, she's innocent in every capacity, and she just gets drained by Morbius. Yeah, that opening scene could just as easily have come from Tomb of Dracula. Yes. And then we have the battle with the demon, where the fortune teller gets um, drained by Morbius. Right. The demon... Morbius tries to drain a demon, but he doesn't have any blood. Right. Also, there's a scene where Morbius... Sorry, the demon, um, Nilrak, just picks up a dude on the street and tosses him at Morbius, and that guy does not land well. Yeah. No, he's gonna have some some back problems for a while. Yeah. If if not, just straight up dead. Yeah. But, you know... Yeah, that's not good. No, he, he he's 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 just a bit dead. Although it's Marvel, you can get better from that. True. Okay. So I think that does it for Morbius. We'll pick yeah. up with him and his adventures in L.A. next time. Yeah, it, it, I think they're still sort of finding their footing on what a Morbius story without superheroes looks like, and how to differentiate it from Tomb of Dracula. Right. So it, it, it's a good enough start, but I'm I'm curious to see if it develops into its own voice as as this goes along. Right. So, our next story, we're going to go a little bit out of order on this one. Uh, we're actually going to talk about the last story that appears in the book, Revenge of the Unliving. Writer on this one is Gardner Fox. Art is by Burnett. A beautiful female vampire rises from the grave, swearing vengeance on the bow who spurned her and then entombed her. Alas, the gorgeous bloodsucker is unaware that it has been 80 years since her imprisonment began, and when she arrives at her unfaithful lover's house, she finds not him, but his nearly identical grandson. Deciding that her revenge will not be put off, she attacks the young man, 
planning to make him her undead servant. As they wrestle on the ground, however, a violent storm erupts, and a young man sees what looks to be a skeletal figure on the roof, messing with a newly installed TV antenna. All seems lost to the young man until the TV antenna falls from the roof, carrying with it a sharpened shard of its wooden mount. The vampire woman is impaled, turning immediately into dust. As the storm clears, the young descendant of Jim Gordon is left to wonder if he has really been saved from his undead curse by the ghost of his deceased grandfather, or whether it had all been a dream. So we have here the tragic origin story of Commissioner Jim Gordon. <laughs> That, 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 that is just a little bit off-putting about the story that the main male character's name is Jim Gordon. It is. Because... I, I couldn't let go of that the whole time. No. And it's like, Commissioner Gordon was definitely a going concern at this point in Batman Comics. And, and Gardner Fox would know that. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Hold up. When was he officially called Jim Gordon? Because maybe they didn't have it. Um, that is a good question. Because was it? Yeah, I'm not Frank sure Mil- when he. Because for a while he was just Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. Um, let's see. Because he like Commissioner Gordon appears in Detective Comics 27. Yes, he's in the first first story. But how right. long is it before he gets the name Commissioner Gordon? Right. It's not that first appearance. Um, right, because pre-crisis he was Tony Gordon. Was he? Um, no, 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 no. He's he's James Gordon. Because they got James from a, a pulp hero, or a pulp character. Yeah. Because um, there, there was a James Gordon called the Whisperer in 30s pulps. Hold up. I'm asking our Twitter people. <laughs> um, random weird fact I just stumbled onto. Apparently, uh, it was a matter of some bitterness that uh, Bill Finger always insisted that he created the character Jim Gordon. Mm-hmm. That, that even if... Kane was involved in Batman, Robin, like some of the other higher profile characters. Finger always maintained that Jim Gordon was his idea. Ah, okay. Well, I mean, so much is, so much was Bill Finger's idea. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But, like, it would not surprise me if Bob Kane didn't think of the fact to have somebody for Bruce Wayne to talk to. Sure, I mean, the Shadow had a confidant within the police department like like he had a relative who worked in the police that he would get information from so like it's not unheard of for a very pulpy hero vigilante to to have some sort of liaison and of course the green hornet around the same time also had a similar setup but yeah it's it's somewhat off-putting that the main character here shares a name with a major batman character yep um, other than that, though, it's kind of a letdown. Yeah, it's kind of a eh story. The the ending just sort of feels like a cop-out. Yes. Like, did it happen? Didn't it happen? Who knows? Although I did like the visual of the skeleton on the roof um, wrenching the antenna free. Yeah, that is a great panel. Yes. That may, be, in fact, be the best panel in the book. Well, in the story, anyway. In the story, for sure. Um... Like, it is way more evocative than anything with the vampire character. Yeah, she's she's kind of boring. I mean, she, she just looks like one of the brides of Dracula in Tomb of Dracula. True. And you kind of feel bad for young the younger Gordon here, because he's just like, gonna install this antenna, gonna watch the Super Bowl. Oh, shit, right. vampire woman. <laughs> yeah, he did not bargain for any of that. Like, he was just there to watch some TV. Yeah. Poor guy. Poor guy. It, it's it's a fun little story. It's an okay story to end things on. Uh, that is some killer aim with the with the with the TV antenna. Yes, definitely. Um, Even making sure it has the wooden shard on the end. You're, you're counting a lot on gravity and wind being on your side. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's uh, a shot that could only be made by an, an undead skeleton. Who roll a twenty? Right. <laughs> um, no, it's. I mean, it, we we've said this before about other magazine stories, but this one really does read like a fifties anthology story. Yes. Um, it leans hard on the narration. 
um, to tell you what's happening, um, and and goes all in on sort of a twist to to um, end on a question mark. Yep. So I suppose we should move on to the story that it's the cover feature for this episode. Right. Um, and that's going to be the vampire. Uh, the story adaptation is uh, by Ron Goulart, uh, based on uh, the tale by John Polidori. The script is by Roy Thomas. Art is by Winslow Mortimer. Um, and we begin with the narrator Aubrey, recalling uh, first hearing of the existence of vampires in Greece. And then we flash back to London in the early 1800s, where he and his younger sister Jessica enjoyed their newly inherited wealth at a fancy dress ball. There. Aubrey inquires about another of the guests, Lord Ruthven, a deathly pale and grim man who, despite his brooding demeanor, seems to attract plenty of attention from the women in attendance. The narrator notes that Ruthven was also surprisingly generous in loaning his money to down-on-their-luck gamblers. One night, after leaving the club, Aubrey is approached by Ruthven, who asks for his company for a voyage to Greece by way of Paris. After arriving in Paris, Aubrey begins to notice unsettling things about his companion, notably his predilection for very young women. He abruptly departs for Greece without Ruthven, and once there he finds a room in an inn and grows close to the innkeeper's daughter, Ianthe. She shows him the various sites and antiquities of the area, and eventually the conversation turns toward legends of a vampire that once plagued the village by feeding on its women. As she tells her story, Aubrey realizes that her description matches that of Lord Ruthven. At the end of their walk, Aubrey is shocked to encounter Ruthven arriving by carriage in the village. The next morning, Aubrey leaves to examine some distant ruins alone. The innkeeper insists that he return before nightfall, and although Aubrey discounts the notion of such superstitions, he agrees to heed the warning. Later, when Ianthe asks where Aubrey has gone, her father casually informs her that he left earlier for, quote, the haunted ruins. In a panic, she rushes out to find him. At the ruins, twilight sets in just as a storm begins. Aubrey hears a woman scream and follows it to a nearby hut. He bursts through the door only to be grabbed from behind by something inhumanly strong. As he regains consciousness, the innkeeper arrives with other villagers, but the vampire has fled and Ianthe is dead. Aubrey awoke several days later, helped in his recovery by Lord Ruthven. However, Ianthe's parents died of broken hearts soon after. Aubrey continued traveling with Ruthven until one day their carriage was attacked by bandits. Although the bandits are defeated, Ruthven is fatally wounded by one of the men. His dying wish to Aubrey is that his body be left exposed to the rays of the moon and that he not tell anyone in London of his death. Aubrey returns to London, resolved to keep the secret of Ruthven's demise. He greets his sister, Jessica, who is unsurprised to see him thanks to the earlier arrival of their acquaintance, Lord Ruthven, who menacingly reminds Aubrey of the promise he made. So, um... This story's bullshit. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if it's my little sister, there is nothing in the world, no promise, no gentlemanly honor that's going to restrict me from saying, Hey, sis, your boyfriend's a vampire. <laughs> so, um... This is, as I said at the beginning, based on the story by John Polidori. Um, right, it's got some it, pedigree it, behind it. It was part of the contest um, between Polidori, Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley, and Lord Byron. Um, and it's the same contest that produced Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which we've discussed at length when talking about that comic. Um, and mm -hmm. and one of the things that's that's interesting about it is... I don't know if this is going to get picked up in another issue of, of the magazine, um, but it, it does end with, with the end, you know, Finis or whatever. It doesn't say to be continued, but it doesn't cover the whole story. Okay, so there's a second half? Um, not even really a second half. It's just sort of missing the third act. What's the third act? Um, so uh, Ruthven seduces the sister. Um, Aubrey tries to intervene but is unable to. Um, Aubrey has a nervous breakdown. Ruthven and the sister become engaged. Uh, and, oh, in the story, there's a time limit on how long Aubrey has to wait before he's allowed to tell people what happened uh, abroad. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so Ruthven and Aubrey set their wedding day on the day that the oath ends. Um, and Aubrey writes a letter to her to arrive on that day, but it doesn't arrive in time. Um, and so they get married. Uh, and then on the wedding night, she is found dead, drained of blood, and Ruthven has disappeared. Oh, damn. And that's why you do things yourself. <laughs> um, so, it's actually, this is a very faithful adaptation of, I'd say, the first two-thirds plus of the story. It's just weird that they left off that ending. Because that actually seems like the more horrific, like, horror anthology yeah. ending. You know, ending on the woman dead on her wedding night, as opposed to sort of leaving it hanging with Ruthven just hanging out in the parlor, you know? Yeah, and... I know they're very proud of their... Look, we're doing this classical vampire story. I'm just questioning the, the thought process behind making this the cover story for the book. Instead of Morbius? Instead of Morbius, yes. I mean, especially because it, in the issues of other comics we've looked at up to this point, where Vampire Tales has been advertised, it is very much advertised as the Morbius book. Yes. And we do have Morbius as part of the cover box image. Sure. Um, I mean, again, I guess it's because it is a classic vampire story. Um, this is the vampire story that predates Dracula, you know? Like, they can sort of uh, claim that they've done both of the great English vampire stories now. Um, but you can also sort of tell in the way that it's told that it is a vampire story that predates Dracula. Yes. It, it feels a little less fleshed out in terms of the mythology um but i mean it's it's as far as an adaptation goes the flaws that i see aside from not having the ending the flaws that i see are flaws that are in the original story you know it's not like it's a bad adaptation no and something that would be interesting kind of like what they did with tales of the zombie is if they had included other cultures stories of vampires as well you know why not a chinese jumping vampire I was, I was about to say the exact same thing. That would have been, been a little bit more diverse and not leaning so hard on the crutch of the European vampire. Although I just... And, and also, uh, there are some really fascinating Mexican traditions of vampirism, too. True. Uh, and I, I, just, I just wonder how well-known those would have been to comic book writers in the 70s in New York, you know? Well, we know they're like, a fairly well-read bunch. Sure, but like, like even like Chinese hopping vampires, they're they start like there started being like movies about those around the late seventies, early eighties. True. So, so it might be a little early for that to get into the into Western pop culture. Yeah, because we definitely like um, jumping on a trend, and <laughs> uh, I don't want to say ripping off, but um, um, homaging oh, sure. films that are in the theater currently. Right, right. Uh, giving the people what they want. There you go. That's the term for it. Giving the people what they want. <laughs> so, what did we think of the first issue of Vampire Tales? It's alright. Is it? I mean, the, the, the Morbius story is fine. Um, the vampire it's, is it's... passable. We didn't talk about the art, but the art is... It, it feels like, Cause I, I don't know, an, an issue of Classics Illustrated or something. I kind of feel like the whole magazine's a mess. It doesn't seem to have much of a focus. Like, we uh, haven't really talked about any of the articles at all. Right. But there is um, a fairly interesting little editorial talking about a guy... Uh, talk about what's to be expected in the magazine. And that wasn't right. the editorial's interesting. It's actually the um, uh, article by Chris Claremont about Montague Summers... Yes, the vampire the article Keith is and Kin. The Claremont article is interesting. I remember this is again the period where Claremont is a uh, editorial assistant, not a writer, and not the guy who uh, revitalized the X Men and wrote it for sixteen years. Right. So, and and his his prose piece here is fairly lengthy. Like it takes up a good yeah, chunk of the magazine. But it's also very interesting. I found. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's the article by Mark Avanier. That's how you say it, right? Mark Avanier? I believe so. The worst, no kidding, vampire films ever made. And it's actually a, a pretty enjoyable, enjoyable article. 
Right, and he's he's not wrong. The the films he lists are generally pretty terrible, including um, Billy the Kid versus Dracula. Oh yeah, that one. Uh, fun fact: that one has an out of print DVD with audio commentary by Joe Bob Briggs. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and there's a mention here of Plan Nine from Outer Space before right. before it got cult status. Yeah. In fact, he even, because he doesn't assume you've heard of it, he even gives you the alternate title, Grave Robbers from Outer Space. Yeah. And Atomic Um, Age Vampire sounds dreadful. Yeah. So, Uh, quick question, Trey. How many of these films have you seen? Um, more than I care to admit. (laughs) Um, I've definitely seen uh, Billy Kidd vs. Dracula. Um, I... No, I've seen at least clips of Blood of Dracula, because I recognize that vampire makeup. Um, I've not seen Adam Age Vampire, although I kind of want to. <laughs> um, he also mentions some of the better ones, like uh, Dracula AD 72 gets a mention. That's a Hammer film with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, uh, which I think we talked about in reference to Tomb of Dracula, because they have very similar yeah. 1970s vibes. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's it's actually a, a pretty fun article if you're looking for some so-bad-they're-good horror films of the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, that, that This list is a pretty good place to start. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess what I would say in terms of the overall flow of the magazine is it pales in comparison to Tales of the Zombie because Tales of the Zombie had the through line of Simon Garth. Every so many pages, you got a little bit more of Simon Garth's story. Yeah. And this doesn't have that focus. It doesn't have that through line. And I know it's an anthology. Anthologies aren't supposed to have a a strong through line, necessarily. But this book would have maybe benefited from leaning a little more heavily on Morbius. Yeah, Morbius exits with a kind of lackluster exit. And it's like, at the beginning, there's some other crap. Like, at least make him the featured story. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's, like I say, it's... I've read worse. Um, I, I still really don't care for the the magazine that's just all uh, movie pictures with captions. No, and... Like, it's better and, It's better than that. Yeah, it's better than Monsters to Laugh With, which we've posted images from on our Twitter. It's... I would have felt really ripped off if I'd spent my whatever 25, 75 cents on that 75, as a kid. yeah. Yeah. Is it really and, 75 and, cents for Monsters to Laugh With? No, no. Vampire Tales is. I'm not sure about Monsters to Laugh With. Okay. Um, and and it's probably better than some of the anthologies that were pretty much all reprints. Yes. I think it's th- I think it's them taking a lazier route than actually creating like a horror host for these anthologies. Yeah. Which honestly would have been a better innovation in my opinion. Right. And, but it's something that even in their horror anthology comics, they were very inconsistent with. Yes. The horror hosts would get introduced, then disappear, then show up again. Including our own patron, Mr. Gravely. Right. The most underrated horror host in, in all of comics. Greatest of all time. True goat. Yeah. Please don't hurt us. <sighs> Please keep on giving us rations. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's... Yeah, I... I the more we talk about it, the more I realize that I was disappointed by it. Um, yes. Because I really wanted a vampire magazine featuring Morbius to be great, and it's not quite that. Like, it's pretty far from great. No. Even the cover is bad. Like, I just scrolled back up to the cover, and it's just ugly. Yeah, the cover is really hideous. Mind you, so is the Tomb of Dracula cover, so I'm wondering what cover we're going to use for the cover image here, but I think i figure something out. Okay. Um, I mean, that Marvel Monster Group corner image is great, but the rest of the cover is bad. Yes. Anyway, I think we thoroughly drained Vampire Tales number one, so we'll be right back with another Bloodsucker, one that you're a little bit more familiar with on this show. Tomb of Dracula number 11, after this message. Most good motorcycles run on gasoline. This is a bad motorcycle. It runs on blood. 
Unfortunately, the bike's previous owner is now dead. One and a half grand's a bit heavy for a crashed bike. Ah, the bike's not been crashed. The last owner didn't die on it. Had an accident with a crossbow. Nick Oddy is the machine's new legal owner, but he will never have true possession of it because it's already possessed by someone or something else. Perhaps he should have suspected something when his best friend was found horribly murdered. I have to tell you, it's not very pleasant. Perhaps he should have listened to his girlfriend when she warned him the bike was a killer. Well, where is it now, then? Well, how the hell should I know? It just drove off. What, all by itself? Yes. It roams the streets alone to satisfy its lust for blood. Name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. No day. No day. Hello, no day. You're under arrest! Anything you say! Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. My name is James Hickson, and we're going to go ahead and end the episode this week with Tomb of Dracula number 11, The Voodoo Man. Cover date on this issue is August 1973. Writer is Marv Wolfman. Penciler is Gene Colan. Inker is Jack Abeck. Colorist is Petra Goldberg. Letterer is Tom Orzawinski. Orzachowski? I'm not sure. And editor is Roy Thomas. As the first rays of morning appear, the Lord of Vampires, Dracula, streaks back to his hidden coffin. While doing so, he muses about the events of previous issues, particularly the motorcycle gang that roughed him up and left him for dead in issue 9, and plots his vengeance on the leather-bound malcontents. Meanwhile, the leader of the motorcycle gang, Lucas Brand, consults with his employer, a man in an iron lung named Jason Faust. Faust sends Brand and his gang out to take revenge on an old enemy of his, a banker who refused him a loan for an operation to cure his condition. Suddenly, without any of the bikers laying a hand on him, the banker drops dead, an apparent victim of voodoo. Returning to his employer, Brand is treated to an exposition by Faust on how he had been captured by a voodoo chieftain on a business trip to Haiti and tortured to the point of his current condition. During this time, however, Faust learned the art of voodoo from his torturers and now plans to use it to seek vengeance on those he blames for his condition. The last of these victims is Quincy Harker, who advised Faust to invest in the island of Haiti in the first place. As the motorcycle gang arrives, however, who should arrive but Dracula? who makes short work of the gang at his full strength. Dracula and Harker part in an unsteady truce and assure each other that when they meet again, it shall be as enemies. Lastly, the gang leader Brand has been changed by his encounter with the Count. Yes, he has been turned into a vampire. Brand tries to feed on Faust, who defends himself with the doll he prepared of Faust for just such an occasion. The damage is done, however, for Iron Lung bound Faust realizes he has become one of the undead as the first rays of morning begin to creep through the large bay windows. Well, this was different from last issue. Very different from last issue, and I'm kind of surprised we got another voodoo story so fresh off of Tales, sorry, Tales of the Zombie. Me too. Like, well, and I guess maybe voodoo was just sort of in at this point? H had... Had Brother Voodoo started yet? No, we're getting that in a few months. Okay, because, um, 
it does seem like that's sort of the trend that things are going toward. I mean, what did you think of this one com- compared to the last issue of Tomb of Dracula? It was not as good as the Blade story. Right. Definitely that's, not. That's where I'm at, too. But it wasn't as bad as I expected it to be based on this really terrible cover. It's a bad cover. It's a real bad cover. If you can't see the cover, uh, listeners, it's Dracula swooping down a motorcycle gang. One of the motorcycle girls is watching, and she's terrified. And the lead rider who can't see Dracula says, Don't let this place give you the creeps, baby. I tell you, there's no such thing as vampires. Yeah. I guess it's supposed to be funny. I, I guess. But the composition uh, is just... The colors clash badly. Yeah. And the like the biker gang doesn't really look much like a biker gang. Like, they look like a biker gang from maybe the 50s. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just a bit boring. Um, and, and part of it is, and I, I've said this on several issues now, I know Dracula is the title character, but it's always a bit of a letdown when we don't have any of our heroic characters in the story. Now, we do get to see uh, young... Quincy. Young Mr. Drake and Miss Van Helsing out on the town, and apparently they are a bit closer in their relationship. Right. Uh, She addresses Drake as love. Right. Apparently Van Helsing and Drake have taken their relationship a bit further, off camera, which is kind of disappointing considering they're some of the main characters. Right, and that 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 sort of will-they-won't-they relationship has been building for a while now. Yes. Um, but I mean, that's, that's all we get of them too. Like we get, we get Quincy, I guess, but I feel less attached to Quincy as a character. No, we haven't had time to get attached to Quincy as a character. Right. So, so we don't get Blade, who's sort of the new hotness that, that we want to see more of because of the last issue. Um, we don't really get much from Frank, Rachel, and Taj, except to say, oh, they've been having a real interesting story while you're not looking. Yeah. Like that, that. Instead, we get this, like, weird, like, voodoo biker thing. I don't know. I feel like the story we're not getting to see is more interesting than the story we're being told. Now, to be fair, we are getting we are getting cool things like Blade. And we do get what I think is a very cool visual of an iron lung of robot arms. That This is fair. But... Uh, like, you would not expect, like, the, the old guy in the iron lung to be a voodoo practitioner. No. With his robot arms, which is it's it's a fun little, fun little concept, I will say. Right, that that he has these two robot arms that he only uses to pick up a voodoo doll and poke it with a pen. Although, part of me thinks if he has the money to hire bikers to do his bidding, and this big palatial mansion, I feel like he has the money for the surgery. I would think so. That that does seem to be a weird sort of unanswered question. Yeah, and. I'm wondering, like, what was so expensive about this search? And, like, if he has the kind of money to buy this stuff, he'd almost certainly be, be approved for a loan by the banker. They love... Right. banker Banks love giving money to rich people. Just ask Donald right. Trump. Ha! <laughs> yes. So, there, there, there are holes in the logic of the story, but it's not unenjoyable. Like, I would certainly take this story over, let's say... Revenge of the Unliving from the Vampire Tales issue, and probably even over the Vampire from the Vampire Tales issue. Sure, sure. It's consistently good, which is yeah. No, the I mean, uh, a not so impressive issue of Tomb of Dracula is still way better than the average issue of a lot of books. True. I'm just not blown away by it. Right. Like I was by the Blade issue. Right. Like, that's the thing, is introducing that new character in such a dynamic way makes you want more of that character. Yes, exactly. Or at least more of the other heroic characters who do similar things. Yep. Because in this story, Dracula's the hero. And it doesn't Right, like, literally. Yeah, he saves the day. Like, not... He is not just protagonist, he is hero. Speaking of that, uh, let's talk about the attack on Harker's house. First... I'm not exactly sure how the dude rationalizes going after Harker. It's like, what Harker did was not based on any kind of maliciousness. Right. It's not... He he, he couldn't have anticipated you getting captured by a voodoo cult. Uh, Well, well, 
I mean, not that specifically, no. But Haiti was not a great place to be from the early 60s through to the mid-70s. Okay. Um, it was a despotic regime that uh, actually, in part, did exploit voodoo as a way of instilling fear. Really? Yeah. Um, in addition to other, like, more traditional totalitarian things, like paramilitary uh, police and... Uh, all kinds of retaliations against citizens and things like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, like, the U.S. actually, the Kennedy administration suspended aid to Haiti in the 60s. Okay. So, yeah, they were, it was not a great place to be at the time. So probably not the best place to invest money in. I mean, the U.S. was frowning on it at the time. I can see why. Um, well, actually, you know what? So if this is... This is supposed to be, what, several years before the issue happens, maybe? Like, how far back is his trip to Haiti? True. Um, We're not given a time frame. It, it, if it's right at the beginning of the 70s, that would have been right when the U.S. reinstated their aid programs, which would have meant more investment in the country. Okay. So so, so there is went... there's a historical reason for when that might have been happening. Doesn't mean it was a safe place to do business, though. No, but there's definitely a context where, okay, this could make sense, and White Harker said, you know, strike while the iron is hot. Right, so this market had just reopened. So, let's go go a little bit further into the attack. Dracula, th there's no reason why Harker wouldn't have some kind of anti-vampire defenses on his house. Right, given that he is set up from the beginning as the gadget man. Yes, and he had to have anticipated that hey, if I don't have, you know, I'm a vampire hunter, vampires might actually come after me in my own house at some point. Right. He seems like the kind of guy who would plan for that. I feel like he has a button on his chair that can unlock the doors. He ought to have buttons on his chair that can do other things. Like, you know, UV fl flood lamps on the, on the house grounds, or... Right. Or, like wooden stakes shooting out of things or something that, exactly i would i would love to have seen that and be like just like like harker mansion by way of raiders of the lost ark temple yeah and dracula's dodging all of it like spider-man whenever whenever he visits avengers mansion and sets off the defenses right? yep but no dracula just sort of busts in through a window that's a callback to how old we are we still reference avengers mansion <laughs> And it kind of surprises me that Harker doesn't at least make some kind of attempt to kill Dracula here. Right. Like, where... Yeah, the, the, the mutual respect thing seems a little weird. It doesn't really work for these characters yet. No. Because we don't know Quincy well enough. Like, we don't, we don't know enough about them and their relationship to, to feel like that moment is earned. No. And... I, I feel like Harker should have still made an attempt, like pulled out a crossbow or something and still made the attempt and Dracula be like, okay, I let you have that one. Right. Next right. time, I won't be as nice. Right. Um, we also get sort of the interesting bit of mythology that I don't think I'd ever seen before that voodoo doesn't work on vampires. Do they establish that here? Well, I mean, because uh, he... Uh, the, the biker comes back for the guy in the iron lung. The guy in the iron lung pulls out a voodoo doll that he prepared just in case of treachery and uh, stabs it. And then the guy's like, ha-ha, that's of no use, for I am a vampire. Oh, yeah, he does. So, so apparently vampirism trumps voodoo. Oh, wait, no, he hasn't stabbed it yet in, in that previous page. But then the vampire bites him. And in his panic, he thrusts the pin in, and that oh, kills the vampire. Oh, yeah, and then he dies for the second. He dies for the second time in two nights. Right. Yes. So yes, vampire. Do, sorry, voodoo does work on vampires. Yep. Yep. And I really liked the ending here, where Jason Faust is trapped in the iron lung, and now is a vampire, and is dying. It's a, and it's a, it's a nice bit where. They don't have to show you what happens. They just have to show you what happens before it, and that's enough. It's 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 really nice. Like the, the whole last page is nice because you don't have to see him 
burn away as the sun rises. You just have to see the look of terror in his eyes. And I like the reflection of his face in the mirror. Although, that shouldn't work. Right. Because he's a vampire. Because he's a vampire. You shouldn't be able to see his reflection. Right. So, oh well, it's a nice visual. That, that's a no prize for us, I think. I think it is. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll just have to send, send in our letter <laughs> back to 1973. <laughs> right. Hope your postman has a DeLorean. Huh. Um, well, we'll have to keep an eye out on the letters page for that. See if anybody else points it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I... It's fine. Like like you said, it's it's not a great issue of Tomb of Dracula, but it's not like it's a huge drop in quality. It, it's just good. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like... I feel like in terms of vampire action... The fight between Morbius and the demon is more dynamic than what we get in this issue. Yes, but Gerber seems to be good at scripting action. Especially for supernatural creatures. Although this is the second Gerber story where it's a demon just springing up and fighting somebody. Right. I I wonder how much of that we're going to get, especially as we get into more of uh, Gerber's man-thing. True. So, yeah, I mean, it's... It's fine. It, it's it's a it's a decent. It issue. gets the job done. Yeah, and, and like you said, that that last page is very effective. Yes, it's it's very effective, despite the hole in logic there of the vampire seeing his reflection of his fangs. Right. All I can figure is that because he is newly turned, maybe his his reflection is slowly fading away. Okay. True. We don't know the process there. Right. So. Trey, speaking of fading away, um, I think that does it for another episode of Tomb of Ideas. I think you're right. Um, we, we've got another great episode planned uh, coming up next. Right. Um, we'll be covering Captain America, 164, Werewolf by Night number 8, and Marvel Team Up number 12. So, uh, so join us next time uh, for what I'm sure will be a howling good time. <laughs> You'll get it later listeners <laughs> um so uh before we uh cut things off uh we do want to make sure that you uh know how to get in touch with us we love hearing from listeners um you can reach us on twitter at tomb of ideas um, we're on facebook uh at tomb of ideas um and uh what's our email address it's tomb of ideas at gmail.com and please let us know if you like your letter read on the show yes absolutely if you have comments, questions, uh, you want us to elaborate on something, if we if we mention something in passing, I would be happy to do that. Um, also, we are part of the Cinepunks podcast group, uh, so make sure you also check out their uh, their really great podcast. They cover a wide range of topics, from music to movies to comics. Um, in particular, check out our sister show, uh, The Flight Stuff going issue by issue through uh, the original run of Alpha Flight. John Byrne's best work. You know, I, I think you're probably, at least in terms of Marvel stuff, maybe right. Um, DC fans might argue for his Superman book, but, you know. I know Michael Bailey would. <laughs> um, so, yes, please, let us know what you think. Um, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a review. Those reviews really matter. Um I don't understand how those algorithms work, but the more ratings and the more reviews we get, uh, the more likely it is that other listeners will be able to find our show. Um, so please uh, do that. Uh, we appreciate your support. iTunes, more mysterious than voodoo. Indeed. Um, and so, uh, all of that being said, until next time, tomb believers. Good night. Good night. All right, that works. Yep. Stopping it. Yep, stopping it. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tombers, Excelsior! Ha 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 ha!